title and also the subject that Paul's going to speak to the Corinthian church about, as well as to us, is to keep your marriage vows. Keep your marriage vows. Paul said in the beginning of chapter 7, Now concerning the things of which you wrote to me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, because of immorality, let you know each man have his own wife and each uh, woman have her own husband. Um, so Paul covered what the Christians' attitudes towards sex should be in the first section in verses 1 through 9, which we covered last week. Being married involves certain obligations that husbands and wives owe to each other, especially in the matters of sexual relationship. But the people also asked Paul about divorce. And Paul had some instruction for husbands and wives regarding divorce. And this instruction that Paul gives is not just his opinion. And and that needs to be understood. It's not just his idea. It's not a suggestion. It is a command, the command of God. And the instructions are certainly not welcome in many of our churches today because it goes against what a lot of people do and want to do. In fact, most instructions from God are not welcomed by much of the world or the church today. And it's uncomfortable. Let's look at verses 10 and 11 as we begin this morning, beginning with chapter 7. In verse 10, it says, Now, Paul's giving the instruction, Now to the married, I command, yet not I, but the Lord. A wife is not to depart from her husband, but even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband, and a husband is not to divorce his wife. So here, Paul gives counsel for Christians married to Christians. Here's a commandment. Paul now is laying down the principle. He's speaking God's truth here. He says the wife is not to depart from her husband and the husband is not to depart from his wife. If one or the other leaves, he says they are to remain unmarried. And the word depart here is speaking of divorce. So that there wouldn't be any doubt as to the source of the teaching here. Paul says, notice, not I, but the Lord. Not I, but the Lord. Jesus had taught this principle during his earthly ministry while he was on earth. In quoting from Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, Jesus said this, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. The word joined there means glued together. Glued together, signifying permanence. And if you've ever glued two pieces of wood together and then split them apart, you don't have, you know, two pieces. You you have two halves of one. And if you look at the parts that were joined together, they're splintered. And that's what happens when a a marriage is separate. There's a divorce. The two halves are splintered. You don't have a whole. And then it's, and, and Jesus said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined, glued together, permanence to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then Jesus added this, 
What God has joined together, let no man separate. Matthew 19, 5 and 6. When Jesus answered the, the disciples' question, can a man divorce his wife for any reason? In Matthew 19. Jesus explained that God allowed. Moses, you know, it, it, the disciples said, uh, or the, the, the scribes said, uh, that, you know, that Moses commanded. He didn't, God didn't command through Moses that they should get divorced. God allowed Moses to permit divorce only because of his people's hardness of heart. And it was permitted, not commanded, only in the case of adultery. Matthew 5, 31, 32. Divorce is not given as the situation, I'm sorry, as the solution to the problem of adultery. It takes two people, it takes two to, uh, to change the heart. It takes a change of heart. For two people to make a new start. And only Jesus can change hearts. So before you run away from your spouse, run to Jesus. Because divorce is an act, it's, a, it's an act of unforgiveness. That is why there's divorce. It's an unwillingness to forgive many times. God said through Malachi and Malachi 2.16, I hate divorce. Now, why does God hate divorce? Because it's contrary to God's plan for mankind. And it shows the wrong picture of God's love for his wife, the church. Jesus will never divorce his wife, the church. And when it's allowed in cases of adultery, it's only the grace of God allowing the innocent party to divorce when their spouse won't stop their unfaithfulness. But when, when there's repentance there can be restoration. Now, we're not told why some of the Corinthians wanted to divorce their partners. But when you read the first seven verses of 1 Corinthians, it sounds like some of the church members thought that they could live holier and more committed lives if they were single. So they may have wanted a divorce for that reason. Now, some may have wanted to leave their mates because, just because they saw somebody more desirable. Or just because they weren't happy with that person. Possibly like the case in Malachi chapter 2.16. Let me read it to you here. This is where God says, I hate divorce. But here he says, why? This is another thing that you do. He says, you drown the Lord's altar with tears, weeping and wailing because he no longer accepts the offerings that you bring him. The men were coming to the altar with their gifts, with their sacrifices, and they're weeping and they're crying because God's not accepting their sacrifice. And, it, and God says, you ask why he no longer accepts them. You know, they're asking, why isn't God accepting our sacrifices? And he goes on to say, it's because he knows, Malachi says, it's because God knows that you have broken your promise to the wife that you married when you were young. She was your partner. And you have broken your promise to her, although you promised, notice, before God that you would be faithful to her. Didn't God make you one body and spirit with her? What was his purpose in this? It was that you should have children who are truly God's people. So make sure that none of you breaks his promise to his wife. He says, I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel. I hate it when one of you does such a cruel thing to his wife. Make sure you do not break your promise to, your faith, to, to be faithful to your wife. People acted, <clears throat> here in Malachi, people acted like they could do whatever they wanted without any consequences. And that's pretty much the, the, the thoughts of the world today. 
When husbands and wives get divorced, it has a negative effect on their children, especially when they're young. It affects their personality. It affects their schoolwork, their attitude, their behavior changes. They rebel. They get in trouble. And then their parents want to take them into counseling and, and tell the counselor to straighten them out. And I had a lady do that, to come in and tell me, hey, you know, my kids are messing up in school and, 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 and they just, you know, they're not doing well. And, uh, and I said, well, you know, something going on that, you know, maybe is causing, you know, th- this, this change. Well, me and my husband, we divorced, you know, a couple months ago. And, I, and, and at that point, I said, and she wanted me to fix that. I said, that's why some things are irreparable. That's why God says, don't do certain things. Because they can't be fixed. And especially when it comes to their children. Again, wanting to, 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 to fix something that was caused by these kids, mom and dad, you know, being divorced. And, and, and the men wondered why God wouldn't accept their offerings and bless them. You see, we can't separate our dealings with God from the rest of our life and expect it to be fruitful. He must be Lord of all all the time not just some things some of the time jesus made it very clear in luke 6 46 to his disciples why do you call me lord lord and do not do the things which i say again inferring that you know either do what i say or stop calling me lord we can't divide up our life into the secular and into the christian this is my time this is god's time this is my money This is God's money. This belongs to me. This belongs to God. Hey, it all belongs to God. It all belongs to God. Relationships are fragile. It doesn't take much to damage or destroy a relationship. And God's word is filled with many principles that are designed especially for making and keeping healthy relationships. But the key to all relationships is the most important relationship of all and that's our relationship with God our relationship with God and if we have a right relationship with God we're going to have a right relationship with the people who are part of our lives Jesus said in Matthew 5 23 and 24 he says if you are about to offer your gift to God at the altar and there that is at the altar you remember that your brother has something against you He says, leave your gift there in front of the altar. Go at once and make peace with your brother and then come back and offer your gift to God. This principle carries over into family relationships. Jesus is saying, hey, if you're coming to worship me and there you remember, hey, you have something against your brother or they have something there. There's a a division. There's conflict. He says, drop drop your, your, your gift there at the altar. Stop. You go make things right with that person and then come back and worship me. You see, if men use their position to mistreat their wives, their prayers won't be answered. 1 Peter 3, 7 makes that clear. Whatever the reasons for their problems in Malachi, they they weren't to divorce. The wife should not depart from her husband, Paul said, and the husband is not to divorce his wife. Divorce is forbidden except for one reason, and that's the unfaithfulness of, one of, the, of, of a spouse. Continued unfaithfulness. Paul, Paul wasn't talking about divorce because of adultery. 
for which Jesus specifically confirmed these circumstances in Matthew 5.32. But here Paul was talking about divorce for other reasons. And, 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 it, and it, it all falls on today, it all falls under this category, irreconcilable differences. They're getting divorced for irreconcilable. And, and all that is saying is that we can't get along. We argue, we just can't get along, you know, and, and, and all of these, it, it, it all seems to fall under that one category. Somebody's not willing to, to, to drop their pride or, or, or their anger or their bitterness or, or whatever it might be. They're not, they're not willing to deal with that. They're not willing to do what they need to do to make things right in order to get along. And the Bible is filled with remedies to fix any problem that we might have. But again, that means I have to die to myself and I have to live for Jesus Christ. Some of the believers, like I said, in Corinth, they had already divorced or they were looking to divorce and they seemed to be headed in that direction. So Paul was telling these people here, if she does leave, as you tell the men, if she does leave, which suggests that there may be circumstances where a woman couldn't continue in the marriage relationship, Because a man is so totally wicked and so depraved and perverted in his whole character that no decent woman could live with him. And in that situation, it seems clear from this, what Paul is saying, that she's free to leave him, but not to divorce him and remarry unless she had the New Testament grounds, which is adultery. So like in the case where, you know, a a, a Christian woman is is married to to um, an unsaved husband, and uh, or even if he is and, and he just, you know, he, he does things that are so ungodly and, and they're abusive and and, you know, an unsaved husband that, that maybe is into drugs. Uh, he's hanging out with bad people that could be a danger to the home, to the to the family. Um, and, and again, she and she feels she needs to leave. She can because there are some circumstances that are so bad that in this situation she can leave. But. She's not to remarry. She's not to remarry. Unless, again, there, there, there comes grounds, the grounds of adultery. And the whole idea is that to separate and pray that her husband or vice versa, whoever it might be, that, that God speaks to them and straightens them out so that they can come back together and, con- and resume their marriage. But if she does depart, like I said, she's to remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. Now, if a Christian divorces another Christian and it's not because of adultery, neither the husband or wife is free to marry somebody else. They must stay single or reconcile with each other. And again, it's because God still sees that marriage is unbroken. And you see, a lot of times people don't. You know, because a, a, because a, a, a divorce court and divorce lawyer and, and they say, you know, okay, the marriage is now di- is over. It's it's you know, you're divorced and and now it's a it's a legal thing. God doesn't look at that marriage as unbroken. Listen to you know you're familiar with David's David's sin with Bathsheba and the story there. David you know saw Bathsheba on the roof one one day and and he he wanted her. And he goes and he lays with her, and she gets pregnant. Now what's what's going to now what happens to her husband, Uriah? Well, David, man, he's in a bad situation. So what does he do? 
he gets, he gets Uriah drunk and says, hey, you know what, take some time off and go be with your wife and spend some time with your wife. You know, David's hoping that staying with his wife, they'll have intimacy and, and she'll get pregnant and that'll solve the problem. But he's an honest soldier, man. He says, no, I'm not going to go uh, be with my wife when all my, 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 my fellow soldiers are out there in the battlefield. I, you know, I'm gonna, I'm, he's not going to do it. So he never, he never spent the night with his wife. So then David has to come up with something else. What does he do? He murders him indirectly. He has his general send Uriah to the hottest part of the battle where he knows he's going to get killed. And that's what happens. Uriah gets killed. That frees David now to marry Bathsheba so that the, the child of Uriah, now it looks like David's. But it says in 2 Samuel twelve fifteen, it says, And the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife bore to David. Notice that. Even though Uriah's dead, and David married Bathsheba, God is still calling Uriah her husband. Didn't say, and the Lord struck the child that, that David's wife bore to him. No. Uriah's wife. Now, this is not Paul's opinion that he's giving here in this passage. This is what God's word teaches, and it's the command of the Lord. Now, verses 12 through 14. Paul says, but to the rest, I, not the Lord, say, if any brother has a wife who does not believe and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. So here now is a new problem in the church as a result of Paul preaching the gospel there. Paul preaches the gospel and now husbands and wives are getting saved. But not both of them are getting saved sometimes. So a husband, let's say, a husband would get saved but not his wife or vice versa. So what is the Christian supposed to do when that happens? Well, in verses 1 through 12 here, the comparison isn't between inspired teaching and inspired teaching like some think. In verses 10 and 11 here, Paul is repeating in detail something that Jesus had already taught in Matthew 19, verses 3 through 9. But in verse 12 here, he's dealing with a situation that the Lord hadn't covered yet in his teaching. So Paul isn't saying that what he himself wrote in verse 12 wasn't inspired. Paul is actually saying that his own words here have the same authority as the words of Jesus himself so here he's giving an, he's giving counsel to christians married to unbelievers who want to stay married if somebody was married to an unsaved husband or wife and there were children in the family paul said that they should try to hang in there stay married if they can what 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 were christians to do who were already married to unbelievers maybe even to immoral and idolatrous pagans were they free to divorce the one that they were unequally yoked to? And then that made them free to either live single or marry a believer? Now, they were reasonable questions. Again, for those that, that were just getting saved and, and had these questions coming up. 
But considering what Paul taught about their bodies being members of of Christ and, and temples of the Holy Spirit, the Corinthian Christians were concerned because, you know, if they're married to an unbeliever and they're Christians, are they joining a, 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 an unbeliever's body to the body of Christ? You know, and that was a right, a, a right thing to be concerned about, whether or not to stay married to an unbeliever. Because now I'm joining a believer and an unbeliever to the body of Christ. Some believers may have thought that staying married to an unbeliever was like joining Christ to Satan, defiling the believer and the children. And it was dishonoring to the Lord. So the desire for a Christian husband or wife to leave the unbelieving spouse would be very strong because they don't want to do that. Jesus hadn't taught them yet about this particular situation. So that's why Paul says here, to the rest I say, not the Lord. But Paul wasn't saying that what he had had to say wasn't inspired. He wasn't saying that. That he was only giving them he wasn't saying, it wasn't, he was, it wasn't giving him his own opinion. It was only to say that God had not given any previous divine truth on that particular subject. But now Paul was laying it out for them. If a believer has an unbelieving wife and she wants to live with him, he's not to send her away. Christians that were married to unbelievers were not to worry that they themselves or their marriage, or their children would be defiled by the unbelieving spouse. It would be the contrary, the total opposite. Both the children and the unbelieving spouse would be sanctified through the believing wife or husband. Being unequally yoked with an unbeliever, hey, if, if you've ever experienced that, man, it, it, it can be miserable. A Christian married to a non-Christian? It can be miserable, it can be discouraging, it can be frustrating. But it doesn't have to be defiling, dishonorable, or unholy. Because one believer can sanctify a home. And to sanctify here does not mean salvation, or else Paul wouldn't have spoken of the other spouse as being unbelieving. It refers to being set apart, which is the basic meaning of sanctify and holy. So in other words, the sanctification has to do with the marriage and family, not personal or spiritual. In God's eyes, a home is set apart for himself when the husband, wife, or by implication, somebody else in the home, any other family member is a Christian that sanctifies that home. In other words, this kind of a home may not be a Christian home in the full sense. Not, maybe it's not that, okay, because not everybody's saved in the home. But just one, it's a whole lot better than a home where there is no believers at all. Even if the Christian in that home is ridiculed and persecuted, unbelievers in the family are blessed because of that one believer. Even if there's just one Christian in the home, that one Christian blesses the whole house. This world does not understand how blessed they are because we are in this world. When the rapture comes... And we're gone, they're going to see. They're going to experience the full wrath of God. But because of us, it's being held back. Just like the time when when God was going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham said, hey, what if there's 50 good people? Fine, I'll, I'll spare the city. And then he couldn't find 50. And then he began to bargain 40, 30, 12, uh, 10. And, and, and so for 10, I'll, but 
There wasn't. But for one godly person, God said he would have spared the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. But couldn't find them. So again, even if there's just one Christian in the home, that one Christian blesses the whole house. And again, God will bless that whole house just for the one. God, living in that believer, and all the blessings and the graces that flow into that believer's life from heaven will touch and enrich all of those who are in that home. We see that great example in Genesis 39, 2 through 6 with Joseph in Potiphar's house. Listen to what it says. The Lord was with Joseph and he was a successful man. And he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. And his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord made all he did to prosper in his hand. Notice, so Joseph found favor in his sight and served him. Then he made him, the, the, the Egyptian, the Potiphar made Joseph overseer of his house and all that he had he put under Joseph's authority. So it was from the time that he made Joseph overseer of his house and all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake and the blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in the house and in the field. Everything that that Egyptian had, who was not a believer, a pagan, but because of Joseph overseeing his house, everything that, that, that Egyptian master was blessed. His whole house was blessed because of Joseph. Besides that, even though the believer's faith can't save anybody but himself, he's, he's often the way that the other family members could come to know the Lord. By the power of that one person's testimony, I was the first one in my family to come to the Lord. And as a result, the rest of my family came to know the Lord. Same with Kathy's. We were the first, but you know what? As we witnessed and we shared, our families came to the Lord. Remember when God was going to, again, wipe out Sodom and Gomorrah? He did the same thing. Begged the Lord to spare the city for 50 righteous people living there. Also, God looks on the family as a one, as a unit, even if they are divided, spiritually speaking. And most of its members are unbelievers and they're immoral. The whole family is blessed by even one believer living there, living among them. So if an unbelieving spouse wants to stay, the believer is not to seek a divorce. And the Christian doesn't have to be afraid that their children will be unclean or defiled like pagan children because of that unsaved father or mother. Now, it would be a different story if both parents were unbelievers. Then the children would be unclean like pagan children. That is, the children wouldn't have a godly influence. But the Lord guarantees that the presence of just one Christian parent will protect the children. This isn't speaking of salvation. All right, this doesn't mean that their salvation is guaranteed, but they're protected from spiritual harm that they can't protect themselves from, and they'll receive spiritual blessing because they share in the spiritual benefits of their believing parent. They're holy. And many times the testimony of just one believing parent is enough because the children see a clear difference between the believing and unbelieving parent's life, and that's what leads them to salvation. Verses 15 and 16. 
But if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or a sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? Here's Paul's counsel now for Christians married to unbelievers who want to leave. If the unbeliever does not want to stay with the believer, the Christian is free from the responsibility to continue in that marriage. This is how the believer comes into peace. Under these circumstances, the Christian is not committed to spending a lifetime of being harassed, abused, and miserable because of the relationship to an unsaved partner. But the separation has to be initiated and completed by the spouse who wants to leave. All right, the Christian spouse shouldn't encourage fighting or arguments nor separations, hoping it will make their spouse to leave. Because they might look at this, oh man, now I I got a way out, so I'm going to help them get out of here. You know, the scripture can easily be abused here, even by Christians. Sometimes a husband or a wife tries to get rid of the other and forces them to leave so that they might have a spiritual grounds for divorce. But again, Don't encourage your unsafe spouse to leave or get a divorce. You know, know, go ahead, leave. I dare you to leave. I'll even help pay for your divorce lawyer. No. This verse is misused by, by some people as a loophole to get out of the marriage. But what Paul said is given to encourage the Christian spouse to try to get along with the unbeliever and make the marriage work. But... If the unbelieving spouse insists on living, leaving, Paul said, let them go. If they insist on living, leaving, let them go. The only other option would be for a Christian to deny or compromise his or her faith to preserve the marriage. And that would be worse than dissolving the marriage. And I've seen that in many marriages. You know, she, does, she doesn't want to stay because, uh, because of the things that he does and, and, and then, you know, or he doesn't want him to leave because of the things. That, and so she starts doing, you know, maybe she, you know, he wants her to go out and party and drink and do drugs with him. Uh, and that's what Paul's saying here. You know, compromising her faith, you know, it, it is worse than dissolving the marriage because now she's compromising her faith. Paul's main reason for writing this was to urge the marriage couples to seek unity and not separation. Peace and love should always be the uh, distinguishing characteristics of Christian living. The other words that are are passage here that is used, it says that that she is not called, she's called to peace. Or, or, you know, the, the marriage partner is called to peace. And so many, I, many couples have taken this and say, well, you know, I don't have peace. And you know, I'm not at <clears throat> peace with this person. That's not what it means. It's talking about this particular situation. <clears throat> being married to an unbeliever who is abusive or, or whatever it might be. And there's chaos in the home. You know, if that person wants to leave, you let him go. That you may have peace. But not just to have peace in any other situation where maybe you're just not getting along is this particular situation here. So again, his main reason for writing this was to urge the marriage couples to seek unity and not separation. Paul says in this kind of a situation, the Christian is free to let the unbeliever leave rather than insist on continuing a relationship that lives in the environment of tension, constant bickering and fear. 
But I believe that the Bible teaches that the Lord wants a Christian husband or wife to do everything they can, spiritually speaking, to try to win their partners to Christ, even though there's a guarantee they won't be saved. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 3, 1, Wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, notice, Peter saying, look, if you might be married to a husband that does not obey the word, he says, but be submissive, you know, do what you need to do, biblically speaking, and even without saying anything, they might be one to Christ just by how they see you act at home. Paul also urges that Christian uh, that the Christian partner sacrifice a lot in the hope that the unbelieving husband or wife might be saved sooner or later. And again, we always keep in mind, Jesus would never ask us to do something that he never did. 1 Peter 2, 21 through 23, it says, Christ himself suffered for you and left you an example so that you would follow in his steps. When he was insulted, he did not answer back with an insult. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but placed his hopes in God, the righteous judge. In Matthew 5, 44, Jesus said, we love our enemies. And unfortunately, sometimes our spouses can become our enemies. We love our enemies. Bless those who curse you. Bless those who curse us. We do good to those who hate us. We pray for those who spitefully use us. We respond gently when evil things are said about us. Also, we would rather put up with anything that, uh, than be an obstacle in the way of the good news about Jesus Christ. That's what Paul said. We would rather put up with anything than be an obstacle in the way of the good news about Jesus Christ. Also, in, in, in uh, 2 Timothy 4, 5, you should... Keep a clear mind in every situation. Don't be afraid of suffering for the Lord. Work at bringing others to Christ. And we see from Job's experience how the Lord's plan finally ended in good. Why? For the Lord is full of tenderness and mercy. But if the unbelieving partner is unwilling to listen and they're just hostile to Christianity and it's not likely that they'll become a Christian, let them go. A person's salvation is something that is totally between himself and God. It's between the individual and God. And the Christian partner is obligated to do all he or she can to persuade the unbelieving spouse to come to Christ. But again, in the end, that person stands alone when it comes to making a decision for Jesus Christ. So no one can guarantee the salvation of another person. If the unbelieving spouse initiates the separation and goes through with it, don't condemn yourself. Don't blame yourself because your spouse did not become a Christian. Because we as Christians, we're not responsible for the results of a person's salvation. We're only responsible for telling them about Jesus Christ. As Paul said, one plants, another waters, but God brings the increase. You're like a farmer. You can plow the ground. You can get it ready for the seed. You can plant the seed. You can fertilize the seed. You can water the seed. But there's no way that you can make anything grow. So if you're a believer and you have a wife or a husband that's an unbeliever and they say, I can't stand living with you anymore. I can't stand your religion. You're always reading the Bible. You're always going to church. You're always talking about Jesus. I'm not going to live this way. I'm out of here. And if the unbeliever walks out of the marriage, then the believer is free. But the goal of the wife or husband who's married to an un, unsaved spouse should be to win their spouse to Jesus. Winning them to Christ should be first and foremost in their thoughts. 
in all people that we come across. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, Lord. Father, we thank you for these instructions that Paul has given us, God. It's your word, God. It's your desire, Father. Help us to be all that we've been called to be, Lord. And sometimes it's very difficult. Very difficult, God. But we do know that there's nothing that we can't do because Christ strengthens us. He gives us the ability. So, Father, help us to take your word to heart, Lord, and to trust your word, Lord, and to put it into practice. And it's not until we put it into practice until we see, yeah, it really does work. So, Father, we thank you. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. And just to let you know, it's